VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week was all about the stock market route. Investors grew increasingly fearful of economic fallout from the coronavirus as the outbreak continues to spread. U.S. stocks rounded off seven straight days of losses. Over the past five days, the S&P 500 dropped 11 percent, the most since the financial crisis in October 2008. In a week like that, we needed some perspective. So we sat down with Scott Minard. He is Guggenheim Global Chief Investment Officer, which has $270 billion in assets under management, and get his perspective. We began by asking him if a bear market is inevitable at this point, and how quickly would we get there? Well, it's a great question, Scarlett. Uh, I don't think it's inevitable necessarily. You know, I've had the opinion that we should stop out with the S&P somewhere between 3,000, 3,100, which is what we did today. Uh, you know, we need to take a breather here, get some perspective. Uh, but, you know, as the data keeps coming in, um, you know, as I've said to some people, uh, an epidemic is when your neighbor has the illness. A pandemic is when you have the illness. And so the illness has really not come to the United States yet. But if this really turns into uh, an epidemic in the United States, then I think we have a lot more downside. How, you know, thinking about uh, market risk, there seems to be two things that make this particularly different than anything we've seen lately. One of them is just the sort of extreme levels of uncertainty. Right. It's really hard to model something like this, especially when so much human behavior is involved. And second of all, we've had other periods of volatility. They can usually be addressed via rate cut or right. something like that. I mean, you know, China <clears throat> devalued the currency 2% at the end of 2015. Still a little stimulus and sort of rebalance things. A rate cut may, in theory, help, but this is not really a monetary phenomenon no, at all. not at all. I mean, I think the, the Fed is fairly impotent in this environment. Uh, you know, when you look at, you know, people keep talking about this demand shock and, you know, will we have a demand shock? Or, I'm sorry, there is no demand shock. It's a supply shock. Well, come on. Hotels in New York are empty. Airlines, you know, people are not traveling. It's a demand shock also. So, and lowering, you know, interest rates isn't going to encourage somebody of taking a risk right. of getting the, uh, the virus. But, you know, one thing, Joe, I'll tell you that I've not said to anybody else in public, uh, <clears throat> this is possibly the worst thing I've ever seen in my career. Uh, and, you know, I've been through a lot. I've been through the stock market crash. Uh, in 87. Uh, I went through the financial crisis. Uh, this has the potential to reel into something extremely serious. At what point did you have that realization? This morning. 
Why this morning? What happened overnight? What happened this morning? Um, when you start looking at the data that came in today, not yesterday's data, uh, but what we picked up overnight for increases in cases in Korea, uh, increases for cases in Italy, and, and now Spain is becoming big. Uh, it, it's just, you know, it, it's very hard to imagine a scenario where you can actually contain this thing. And so, um, you know, that's the thing that is, uh, to me, very frightening. So how likely is a global recession? And before you answer that, how do you even quantify global recession? What, mm. what, what kind of numbers does that mean? Well, first off, to get, to get to that answer, we have to make sure the Chinese aren't lying about their output numbers, right? Uh, <clears throat> I went on record two weeks ago saying that I thought that on an annualized basis that the GDP in the first quarter for China would contract by 6%. Uh, um, uh, Don Straussheim at ISI, who's mm -hmm. much more familiar with it than I, now is saying negative 14%. I don't think the Chinese government's going to actually print that kind of number. But if that's the substance of the number, mm -hmm. we are in global recession. Uh, I think that right, right now, now uh, yes, at this point, um, I think that uh, uh, Europe, uh, you know, would easily lose uh, a half to one percent of output, which would put most of the European countries into recession. Uh, for the United States, uh, it's a little bit different. Um, you know, I think that uh, for the moment where we are, we should expect about a half a percent drag on, on GDP. I've seen other experts say at one percent. That is certainly not a U.S. recession, but uh, over time it has the potential to cascade into that. I want to ask you about, you know, after the acute period of this crisis ends at some point, and at some point uh, it'll fade, there's clearly going to be substantial damage to supply chains around the world, degradation to uh, manufacturing infrastructure. When we had other periods of downturns, we had a stimulus, it was like, well, we have all this idle capacity. Right. Could that be a sort of inflationary catalyst at the end if governments try to rev up on the spending and re uh, stimulate their economies at the same time the capacity to produce new things remains degraded? Well, I, I think that the inflation risks today are, are being greatly understated. Uh, because of the preoccupation with uh, the low inflation of the last decade or so. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, having said that, you know, if we are having a supply shock, and as I was listening to someone on television today, um, what does a supply shock mean? Well, it means you've got fewer items for sale. Mm -hmm. If demand stays the same for, like, iPhones or, let's say, uh, face masks, right, it's going to push prices up. So, uh, you know, we're, you know, the market is designed to ration supply based on price. And so I do think that uh, the central banks could find themselves in the peculiar situation of thinking they better cut rates even while they're starting to see evidence of an acceleration inflation. That's interesting. Liz Ann Saunders of Charles Schwab was on the other day, and she was saying if globalization slowed inflation and the coronavirus right. and, of course, the trade war before that leads to some level of deglobalization, then it may follow that the fallout from this virus could end up being inflationary. Right. And you're right. saying the same right. thing? Same thing. Yeah, I think she's got a great insight, probably. And regardless of the severity, it's just it's hard to see... Just sort of going back to business as normal. I mean, right. we thought that at the end of the trade war, or right. sorry, the trade war is not over, but after the phase one, it's like, well, this is going to permanently change things with U.S. and China. This just adds to it. Yeah, I mean, again, last uh, two weeks ago, I made the comment that if this extended for another two weeks, then we were, you know, we were absolutely going to see uh, at least a half a point loss in GDP in the United States. 
Uh, <clears throat> you know, as we sit here today, and I, I spoke with uh, a number of experts. I spoke with Mike Milken this morning, mm -hmm. who's uh, been working on accelerating the uh, um, the um, inoculation on the medical the, side. On right? medical science, uh, you know, uh, it, it is hard to imagine how this isn't going to just continue to spread. Why is it then, sorry, Joe, why is it then that so many people were willing to look past this for so long? I mean, you, we had the smartest people come on saying, you know, this is going to be like SARS. It'll be over quickly. It, things are, will be delayed. It won't be lost. Well, you know, I didn't agree with them back then, Scarlett, and your comment proves that I'm not the smartest people. So thank you for that. But uh, You're one of the smarter people. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to be sort of slow. Um, but, um, <clears throat> you know, I think that, that the reality is, you know, the, I, I use the phrase cognitive dissonance. And what cognitive dissonance is, is that when you think about the outcome of an event and that it's going to be disastrous, and it becomes unthinkable, like nuclear war or something. Uh, the, um, the nature of most human beings is to resort to believing that will never happen and things are going to be okay. And so that, that's the heart of cognitive dissonance. And so when you start to look at the data and look at the real world and what's going on, the risks are so high that when you start to think about its impact on the economy, uh, on deaths, on other things... Uh, the the natural human tendency, uh, you know, that Danny Kahneman from, that is working behavioral finance would say for people to, to just do the knee jerk response and say that that can't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, just as you know, I commented in my commentary two weeks ago, uh, the cognitive dissonance of Britain uh, in the 1930s about Germany mm -hmm. um, it was better, even though it was obvious it was coming. But you know, Neville Chamberlain gave us peace for our time. So you describe this as possibly the worst thing you've seen in your career, and obviously, you know, there are, uh, crises happen, and typically speaking, you know, obviously there's the great financial crisis, wars, et cetera. At some point, there is a good opportunity yes, right. to buy. So putting, uh, just from a pure investor standpoint, how would you even go about thinking? And it may be 10% lower sure. here, maybe 20% lower from here, maybe here. How would you go about thinking when that moment does arrive? Well, you know, what I would look at is some historical precedents. Yeah. Um, you know, I do believe this, right, that the, the coronavirus will pass. Um, you know, even a plague comes to an end. And so, you know, if this thing reaches full scale... The pandemic, most optimistic thing I've heard all day, even a plague comes <laughs> That's right. Finally. So, you know, I, I would say that this will play out over the course of the next year. Um, that is not going to be enough to totally decimate, even though we might have a recession, it's yeah. not going to decimate the capitalist system. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so, you know, what I'm looking at is looking at where credit spreads in particular, mm -hmm. uh, since most of our money is in fixed income. Uh, how wide they can get. If we got back to uh, spreads that were consistent, let's say, with the uh, energy meltdown uh, back in 2015, uh, you know, I think it would be time to really jump in with both feet. Uh, the stock market, I think, is harder. Um, you know, I think that uh, <clears throat> it wouldn't, it would be very likely that the stock market could be down, uh, let's say, 15% from the highs, maybe 20 over the course of the next few weeks. That would probably force the Fed's hand, um, and you know. Uh, but you know, it's you know, you know the you know the definition of the most expensive sport in the world. What is it? Bottom fishing. Okay. So I'm not ready to commit that right. we're going to buy there. It's also worth noting that you know, if we got a twenty a true bear market, twenty percent where people like to define it, it just gets us what to like the middle of last summer. 
Right. It's not from a timeline standpoint. It's just bad. It's not even a year. I know. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Everything was so rosy. Right. I mean, I was very optimistic about stocks this year. And, and by the way, if we can contain this, mm-hmm. I still believe on the year we'll be up 10 to 15 percent on that's stocks. That's a huge if right now. Right. It's, that's, that's the uncertainty. And, okay. So if, if we get to the point where the Fed's hand is forced, um, it would presumably come in with some kind of rate cut or perhaps something more. In the meantime, how do policymakers address this? How do they shore up confidence? Is it verbal? Is it something more? Well, look, I think an example of that was last night, the president's speech. I mean, that was clearly an attempt to shore up confidence uh, on his part. Um, I think um, that uh, if I look up the definition of the word pandemic in Webster's, uh, I think we're there. But interestingly enough, the World Health Organization, uh, the CDC, has not started to use that word. So, you know, it's clear to me uh, that even those organizations have sort of downplayed the severity because they realize that if the crisis hits, there aren't the resources to fight it. There are not enough respirators in hospitals in New York. There There are no face masks left in any of the stores. Um, you know, so you really, you know, it, it, it's not something that's going to be, it's going to turn into a major disaster. So did the organizations do a disservice to the public <clears throat> by not calling it a pandemic? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, if you get to the point where people are in New York, let's use this as an example, are so concerned about getting the coronavirus that they stop getting on the subways and they stop going to work, that's a big impact on output. Uh, so, you know, you, you want to be measured in what you say. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, for people who, uh, who, who are taking the comments at face value, uh, you're probably not getting prepared. And, you know, you mentioned that uh, press conference last night. You mentioned uh, preparation, credibility, all of these things, very important, especially in just sort of getting the message to the public about proper preparation. How do you think our authorities have done so far in sort of balancing exactly that? They're right not to want people to panic, but they want people to be prepared. And how do you think they're getting out of that balance? I, I think organizations like the CDC, uh, the National Institutes of Health, um, I mean, I think they are taking all the steps necessary. I give credit to the president uh, for the fact that he acted quickly okay. to cut off flights to Wuhan. Uh, I think uh, we need to probably be more aggressive. I think we should probably be cutting off flights to, to South Korea and Italy. Um, but uh, at the best, uh, what they're doing is buying time. But time is something that's useful because the vaccination uh, you know, could be developed in the next four to eight weeks based on conversations I've had. And that isn't going to be enough to inoculate everybody, but at least it would be useful for the, the, the worst of the cases. Right. It provides some kind of light at the end of the tunnel. Right. Um, going back to the markets for a moment here, because clearly as we digest all this, people have to make sense of how to translate this into their investments. Do you think, given what we've seen today, and we've seen some big swings, um, we're back to the middle of our lows. I mean, we're, we're not at our highs of the session anymore, off by 2.6% the S&P 500. Have we reached a point of emotional trading, disorderly, panicked price action? And is that even possible in a world dominated by passive index funds and other strategies that tend to automatically rebalance? Right. Well, I think, first off, that... that uh we did get a pretty high level of panic this morning, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know that that was a pretty good signal to us that we needed to take a pause here. Uh, <clears throat> you know, as far as uh, the indexation of products, um, 
and uh, especially things like ETFs, uh, you know, I am concerned uh, that uh, the liquidity structure around these investments, in particular like um, fixed income ETFs, um, is not sufficient to uh, deal with a sudden uh, run on credit investors, by credit investors. So, you know, if we were to see a huge increase, let's say, in the sale of uh, high-yield ETFs or bank loan ETFs, um, the liquidity for the securities relative to where the pricing services are marking these securities uh, is much different. It's in a different zip code. Well, we haven't seen anything in the six days so far. Not yet. And, uh, you know, we are seeing some. I mean, the comments before we, I just came on here about, you know, high yield spreads widening, uh, that is a pretty rapid increase. Uh, you know, maybe not enough, but, you know, the market takes time to adjust. What about on the rate side? I mean, we just see this <coughs> relentless bid for treasuries day in and day out, 10-year, 30-year yields hitting levels that sort of almost uh, unimaginable, even few weeks ago right. seemed uh, when everyone what uh can that just continue can we see like sub one percent on the 30 year and all that well joe look i uh, uh you know i i tell people i i like to listen to what the data tells me yeah uh, when you look at the technicals on the 10-year note uh <clears throat> and uh, the long bond yeah uh given that we're comfortably through the support on yields that's been in place for the last eight years uh, the targeted yield for the 10-year note is 25 basis points, hmm. or a quarter of 1%, and the uh, long bonds targeted yield is 1%. And uh, over the course of the next few days, um, if things, you know, we're, we're assessing at this point, but uh, I do believe we will position ourselves uh, for that outcome. Wow. When the Fed, you mentioned the Fed's uh, hand would be forced if we see perhaps another 15 a 15% drop from the peak. We're already at about 10%. What, what would the rate cut look like? Nariana Kachalakota, the former Minneapolis Fed president, said that he is looking for the Fed or wants the Fed to cut rates by 25 basis points, possibly even 50 basis points before the March 17th, March 18th meeting. Right. So a, a, an emergency cut, essentially. Right. Uh, look, I think the likelihood of an inner meeting cut right now is pretty low. Now, obviously, if, if suddenly we found ourselves down 25%, I think the response would be different. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we learned the reaction function. <laughs> it's funny. I learned it on this television show uh, uh, back in uh, December of 2018. Glad we could provide a service. Right. As soon as the market was down below 15%, approaching a, a correction level of 20%, the Federal Reserve pivoted. And so uh, <clears throat> we know what the Fed reaction function looks like. And... Um, you know, if uh, that's why I'm really focused on watching the stock market, mm -hmm. because I think that's our best clue. The other thing that I'm really focused on is the shape of the yield curve. Uh, if two tens inverts, uh, that is 10-year yields are below two-year yields on Treasuries, then uh, you know I think that we're uh, you know the, the Fed is going to look at that as a very serious indicator in the face of all the other uncertainties. You mentioned, however, near the beginning that you don't expect a Fed rate cut to be particularly useful in this kind of environment. Impotent was the word he used. Impotent. Impotent. Uh, even worse than not particularly useful. I was uh, sugarcoating it a little bit. That being well, we said... We might be able to get them some Viagra and fix it. <laughs> that being said, should, would it still make sense, nonetheless, for the Fed to signal here, not that they think that, okay, a 25 basis point or even a 50 basis point cut would solve everything, but indicate that, like, they're, they're taking this extremely seriously. Right. Yeah, I think, look, Joe, they, 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 the interesting thing is they've got 
you know, the, the only thing they've got is a signaling mechanism. Yeah. And if the signaling instills confidence, then that's what they're going to look to do. Yeah. Um, if the signaling it instills panic, uh, you know, like a 50 basis point rate cut or an intermediate rate, I don't think they're going to be very anxious to do that. But one thing to be aware of is that um, the Fed does care at some level about its public perception and being criticized. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've already been heavily criticized for the rate hikes back in 2019 right. uh, or t- 2018. Uh, and so uh, I think they're going to be very, very sensitive that if they don't take action at the March meeting, yeah. uh, that they will be criticized for dragging their feet and waiting too long. Now, I want to bring in another element here because some people also attribute the weakness in stocks to Bernie Sanders' fears. Um, The thinking or the argument here is that a weak economy would strengthen the odds of a progressive socialist, um, democratic socialist, beating President Trump, which, of course, is scary to Wall Street. Is there anything to that idea? I think so. I think if the – look, if the economy starts to slip into a recession – uh, then I think that uh, there is a, a, a negative feedback loop that develops uh, that uh, uh, signals to the market that, you know, it's time to get more conservative. And, uh, you know, the, the perception obviously is that uh, a, a Sanders presidency would be damaging for business. I want to take a look at the euro because the euro is stronger today and it's certainly gaining versus all the major currencies. I've uh, got it here on the Bloomberg terminal showing the gains versus, for instance, the RAND, the peso, the Brazilian real. Uh, It's back to the $1.10 level. And a lot of this is because Germany indicates signals that it's looking into potential stimulus measures to blunt the economic impact of the coronavirus. I mean, it takes a lot for Germany to say that it's willing to spend something. Right. You know, I I, got to give credit to Christine Lagarde. I think she is working behind the scenes mm. to okay. get governments to step up. The, the, I do expect the Germans will do some stimulus. Uh, how big is always a question with the Germans. But, um, you know, I think at the same time, uh, she's going to work with the EU uh, to try to, to ease the restrictions on deficits in the short run for the other nations, uh, and in particularly places like France and Spain. Uh, where, you know, they, they really need help to raise output because unemployment in Germany is still fairly low, but the unemployment rates in other European countries is much higher. And, of course, Italy is likely to break the, the, the limit again, so you know, we can just assume they'll do it. Do you think that uh, fiscal <coughs> stimulus in the U.S. is plausible in the short term with divided government? Usually we don't get it unless the White House and the Congress are controlled by the same party. What well, was interesting to listen to Speaker Pelosi a moment ago, where she basically said this is time for it to be united and not to be partisan. So I think there is a willingness uh, to, uh, to not be seen as someone who wants to interfere uh, with saving the economy, especially if you're running for president. And um, you know, I think that uh, the speaker will um, uh, be able to garner enough support in the House if the president comes up with some sort of spending bill. I do think that uh, it, it should be a spending bill. It, it, uh, uh, a rebate uh, akin to what's going on in Hong Kong where every citizen gets yeah. 10000 By helicopter money in the U.S.? Well, I, we tr- I don't think that will work. And the reason is, uh, you know, if you're, if you're scared to death to go outside of your apartment because of the virus, you know, getting an extra $1,000 in your bank account isn't going to incent you to do it. So, um, I mean, it's going to look, you know, in some ways like good old-fashioned Keynesian stimulus uh, because I think that's the only thing the Democrats would get on board for. 
So, uh, you know, in terms of what you're watching here, I mean, obviously, is it just about the sort of daily statistics, more or less? Are there behavioral things either in society or in markets that you're paying attention to? I mean, like, what are you watching that's going to guide your investing decisions? Sure. Well, I think there are two things. But to talk about the behavioral aspect first, uh, I think the markets are telegraphing us. And uh, so, therefore, the number one thing to know if this thing's getting worse is, is to watch the markets. Um, and, and that's my number one approach. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, you know, uh, I, have, I go to a, a website every day, numerous times, called Worldometer. Uh, that Worldometer? Worldometer, right, uh, where you can actually get the hour-by-hour update on the cases of the coronavirus. This sounds like a recipe to drive oneself crazy. Looking at it hour by hour, but well, uh, yeah, my partner says that I'm obsessed. But anyway, uh, <laughs> full disclosure, <laughs> exactly. So, but uh, you know, when you when you start to see, you know, like here, here's an interesting thing that nobody seems to be paying attention to, even though it was only four cases, new cases in France yesterday, yeah. it was up forty percent. Right. Right. I mean, this is the way exponential growth starts, and this is exactly the same pattern that happened in Wuhan. It's the same pattern that happened in South Korea. It's it's the pattern that you follow. And so as this pattern keeps developing in various countries, you know, um, it, it's, it's raising the risks. But the number one place I'm looking to see where the pattern is, is, is it in the United States? I don't see it yet, but, mm-hmm. you know, will, time will tell. The Fed is looking at the stock market. You think that that's something that they're paying very close attention to. They're sensitive to any changes there. Um, are stocks in the U.S. a forward discounting mechanism right now, or are they still playing catch-up? I think they're still playing catch-up. I mean, it was interesting, again, to go back to uh, the commentary I wrote two weeks ago. I, I made a comment that, you know, uh, we're in the silly season, and I said, okay. I stand corrected. We're in the ludicrous season. Uh, because, you know, valuations on risk assets are so high in the face of such a high level of uncertainty. So, you know, I would say that uh, given where we are in valuation, both in credit and especially in investment-grade credit uh, and in the stock market, uh, that, uh, you know, the the market, uh, to to, uh, borrow Speaker Pelosi's word, is fragile. Mm -hmm. And so we are more vulnerable to a hard sell-off than if, you know, we were already 30 percent lower than we are today. So at some point, uh, you and others will start to see things on the screen that start to look like compelling buys and even with the risks out there that are perhaps too good of a deal to pass up. We're not even in, you know, an equity side and risk assets, not that even far off all time highs, really. But what would what do you what's what could theoretically be on your shopping list down here? Well, look, I'm I'm very interested in looking at uh, high yield. Uh, You know, I think that, uh, you know, if this if we do get a severe crack in high yield, uh, which we did back in 2015, but stocks didn't even pull back 20 percent, that that could be a good place to enter. Uh, you know, but if we get stocks down 35 or 40 percent, which would be, you know, uh, not completely to be unexpected given how far we've run, uh, then, you know, you could probably... Over what period? 35 to 40 percent? Sometime in the course of the next year, you know, I mean... It's going to be a brutal year. Well, again, I'm, again, I, I have to pause because you, you used the phrase at one point, which I used, which is if uh-huh. we don't keep this contained. Uh, so I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm still going to let the data tell me. Right. Uh, but I'm just saying these are things that are, are possible out there. How much, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit about uh, credibility. And I, I mentioned the White House press conference. But we live in a period of time in which people don't have a lot of faith in any in public institutions corporations, governments, anywhere. There's just not a, not a high confidence trust time. Right. How much does that exacerbate 
the risk, in your view, that the, the beyond, that beyond the health part, that there is a sort of a societal uh, dimension to this, the panic and so forth? Well, certainly, uh, you know, in a different age, uh, the president making a statement uh, would instill more confidence in right. people. Uh, uh, you can see how quickly people criticize the president's yeah, comments. Uh, so I think that does increase the risk of panic. Um, you know, but I also see, Joe, panic as opportunity. Yeah. Uh, now, I don't want to see panic in terms of, you know, it damaging people's lives. Yeah. But in the market, uh, you know, the, uh, I, I often remind people that the, the, the two characters that are crisis in Cantonese are danger and opportunity. So we clearly are in danger. Uh, now I'm going to look for its cousin opportunity. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Then we took a deeper dive into the supply chain impact from the virus with Yossi Shafi, professor of engineering systems at MIT and director of MIT's Center for Transportation. We began by asking Yossi if there was any historical comparison to make when it comes to the potential supply chain disruption. The comparison to, first of all, thank you for having me. And uh, I'd like to ask you next time when you um, invite me to speak, I'd like to speak on, a, have the, uh, the introduction a little bit more upbeat than okay. what, what I just heard. <laughs> fair, fair. But, uh, fair, okay. But when we talk about uh, supply chain in general, first of all, I think I've, I was writing a month ago that it should be compared to 2008 because we don't only have supply disruption, factories are closing, transportation links broken, but we have a demand problem because... Right. Company, people are not buying. And this is just starting. We used to have it in China. We have it now in uh, all over Europe. We are starting to have it in the United States. It's going to get quite a bit worse before it's going to get better. And we can talk about uh, which companies will be uh, most, most in danger. Well, um, so, 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 I mean, one of the things that a lot of people have been discussing is the complexity of modern supply chains the sort of just-in-time manufacturing such that companies do not uh, have a lot of spare inventory. There's been a lot of discussion about concentration risk, how much of the supply chain is in, in China specifically. We know the disruption is happening. How hard do all these things make it to sort of recover from uh, an extreme disruption? First of all, the complexity of the supply chain is not the problem. The uh, just-in-time also is um, overly hyped in the sense that there's a lot of inventory. You saw Chinese factories have closed now for six weeks or so. Right. 
we still don't, don't have any uh, shortages in the marketplace. Mm. It will come, it will come, but there's a lot of inventory in the channels and a lot of ships on the sea that still have a lot of inventory on them. So sometimes towards the end of March, I expect to start seeing uh, shortages. Mm. But let's talk, about, let's talk about a phenomena that will uh, focus the mind on which companies should be helped. And to understand this, we talk about the so-called bullwhip in supply chain. What happens is, assuming a retailer sees its forecasting system and what it sees mm -hmm. in, on its point of sale system, tells it that X percent less, uh, uh, less demand is coming in. Now, it's, it sees it into the future and it has too much inventory, so it will cut by 2x percent its orders from, from the wholesalers. Hmm. The wholesaler sees the same thing, it will cut by 4x percent hmm. to, the, to, the, uh, to the manufacturer. And so it goes on from supplier to supplier. The most vulnerable people are the small suppliers at the upstream of the supply chain. Right. And by the way, the Chinese government totally understand it. The Chinese government now asks all the state banks to loan money to the small supplier at the end of the supply chain, they even cut their taxes. So okay. they're starting to do it. In the same way, companies should look at their suppliers, should look who is vulnerable, who, who should be helped. During the 2008, companies extended credit, companies even invested in right. their uh, in the critical supplier. You make a great point illustrating the knock-on effects uh, of how uh, yes. a, a cutback in demand affects not just the, the supplier, but then their supplier as well. What happens then when that demand picks up? I mean, people are talking about a V-shaped recovery. We don't know if we'll get that, or a U-shaped recovery, but at some point, things will bottom out and there will be a pickup in demand. How quickly does that whole system turn around? Very slowly. Not, it's not going to be V-shaped because many of these suppliers will be out of business, by the way. And what happens is the following. Others have lower capacity. They cannot supply all, uh, all the orders now. So what companies are doing, they start doing what's called phantom orders. They order a lot more than they need because they know that they get only, uh, only a percentage of this. And suppliers cannot supply. So what you really should have uh, having is the bullwhip in the opposite direction. Now it, it, it starts hitting um, uh, customers and their customers and their customers. Nobody can, uh, can get enough. It's not going to be a V-shape. I just don't see a V-shape. We didn't have it after 2008. We did not have a V-shape mm. because of the same phenomena. So I don't expect to have a, a V-shape. However, uh, let me just add, we talk about what companies should be looking at their supplier. They should also looking at the customers. Right now, companies should be sitting and deciding what if we don't have enough parts? What if we cannot build all the product? Which products are going to be built? Because many parts go to multiple products. And which customers are we going to shave? Are we going to save? Who is coming first? What are the priorities for I serving see. customers? You don't want to do it at the last minute when you don't have. Right. You want to set up some rules right now when you still have some time to breathe. So do you we think can there also is, talk about government. Do you think there's still time? I mean, obviously, all of these things that you talk about, uh, ideally, companies would have had this as part of contingency planning, whether there's a crisis or a downturn or not. Nonetheless, we are here, and presumably some companies are better prepared than others. In your view, is there still time for companies to make adjustments and think about these things, or is it a matter of the ones that prepared are going to be in better shape than the ones that didn't? 
there is there some for something there's no time for tar, for something for finding alternate suppliers there's just no time it's it it's gone it's it, it's too late right. if you didn't have it ready if you didn't have contracts in place if you didn't have quality assurance already on on, uh, on the other suppliers it's not going to happen however preparing for example priority of customers it's a what if situation this can be done now preparing a decision making um, rules about what happens if the CEO gets stuck and who makes decision on what. Companies can still do all these things because these, are, these don't take a lot of time. It's mm. processes. Okay. Um, they should also start thinking about, you know, workers, who are the crucial workers to have, how do we think about continuity of pay, and last thing they should be thinking about is starting to manage for cash flow, not for profit. Okay. As, as hmm. time goes tough, cash is king. So companies should start thinking in these terms. Professor, I want to get your thoughts because, of course, the supply chain, companies were already changing some of their supply chains because of the trade war um, with China. And, of course, we did get phase one signed, but that, didn't, that doesn't really change the scope of the problems here overall. Do you think that the trade war changed the supply chain, the change of the processes that the companies had in place with their suppliers, with their customers, and that that is still in flux and perhaps it's holding off or changing the way that they would make these contingency plans? Companies started making these contingency plans and starting moving to other places like Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia. But where would you move now? I mean, is Vietnam a safe place? Is Malaysia a safe place? South Korea doesn't look like a safe place. Japan doesn't look like a safe place. So it's not even clear where to move. You, think you want to move to Mexico? I don't know why, why Mexico would be immune to all of this. So the move has nothing to do with the coronavirus because you don't know where to move. But the, uh, uh, over time, companies should simply spread right. and having some redundancy, having suppliers in more than one continent. That's a general thing that companies have been have been doing, and but it's certainly right. not a, not a wave at this point. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.